Welcome to another episode of, of Path to Peace. Um, I'm joined by Joel. Thank you so much for coming. Oh, no problems, Lockie. Thanks for having me, man. Looking forward to a chat. Yeah, should be good. Should be good. I, um, yeah, so give us a bit of a insight into you, uh, what you do, your work. Um, yeah, 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 give us a start. I'm a, I'm a psychologist based um, out of the Sutherland Shire. I have a, a general practice. My background is in sport and performance psychology. So I've got a master's degree in sports psych and I, I do a little bit of or a, a lot of sports psych work, but predominantly do more general psychology work. So I work particularly with blokes, um, men's mental health. I do a lot of couples work, um, do a lot of individual uh, work as well. So yeah, general psychologist, but I have a sport and performance um, leaning or focus. Perfect. Yeah, and so obviously you see a lot of athletes for their, I guess, performance pressures and, mm. and anxiety. And I guess you're, you're, you more, you specialize in that type of thing, or you, you have a range of things that you see. Yeah, do. definitely. I, I, I specialize in sport and performance psychology. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of the work we do is with athletes, not just, um, you know, uh, professional athletes, but people of all ages. I, I work a lot with younger kids or people coming into rep sport for the first time. So that's, mm. A lot of the work we do sometimes work with parents to help them just manage their expectations of their kids and not put too much pressure on, you know, yeah. younger athletes coming into professional rep sport for the first time. So it's not just professional athletes. It's, a, you know, athletes from all levels and ages and ranges. Yeah, right. Do you, um, I guess, is there like a, a common theme you see across um, when you're dealing with not only just the parents, but the kids and trying to um, nurture that relationship, I guess a common theme with that yeah. performance pressure. Yeah. Performance. Yeah, exactly right, mate. It's performance pressure, which then becomes anxiety. And um, sometimes kids just manifest that themselves. Sometimes it's about what they're doing to themselves. Sometimes it's about, you know, managing expectations, parents' expectations, coaches' expectations, just not feeling like they're in control. You go from being a, a you know, potentially a talented 12-year-old, 11-year-old, 13-year-old mm. into, you know, potentially rep sport for the first time, whether that's, you know, rugby league or AFL or swimming or whatever it might be. And then there's mm. heightened expectation because you're going to carnivals or you're going to swim meets or, you you know, you, you're in talent ID squads and, and it sort of changes then from being about yourself and having fun to expectations, Lucky. So that's a lot of what I deal with in terms of younger athletes and just managing their own anxieties around expectations, their own and other people's. Yeah, right. Is it like, um, I guess like like with that, I know you can't uh, speak to actual like clients and stuff like sure. that, but like how has that been like any like, I guess success? Like has it been good to see someone that you've, you start to see younger yeah. and then you see them, you know, grow up and then you'd see them, you know, I guess reach that potential that, that you're trying to, that you're yeah. trying to help them get to, like yeah, the absolutely. success there. Yeah, well, that's one of the things that I'm very passionate about is supporting younger athletes. And that's why uh, for myself personally, that's a bit of a leading that I have and a, and a focus I do um, try to engage in is working with athletes younger. So you do get that sort of sustainable approach, but also you do, as you've identified, get to see people go from, you know, timid, shy, potentially anxious, younger athletes into more comfortable, confident, older athletes. And that doesn't necessarily mm. mean they go off to play professional sport or go yeah. to Olympics or those sort of things, but at least within themselves, they feel more comfortable and confident. And yeah. that's a big part of what I focus on, particularly with parents is helping them understand that this is not about becoming Olympians or professional athletes. It's about making sure they have a comfortability around performing at their best. And there's a lot of lessons that kids and parents can learn out of 
you know, higher level sports. It doesn't necessarily equate to, you know, million dollar contracts or yeah. Olympic gold medals, but certainly has a lot of benefits in other areas of life in terms of relationships in the future or workplaces in the future or studying in the future. It certainly does have a significant um, correlation if we use it the right way in terms of rep sport or, or high level sport and then general life um, experiences as well, Loggy. Yeah. So, like, I guess, is there a, um, like, I guess if you found, like, there's a lot of, like, actually, I'm interested to see, actually, because I've been doing a lot of breathing okay. um, myself, a lot of breathing techniques, yeah, a lot great. of patient, and I found that yep. really helpful before um, training, before games. Yep. Um, is that something where you focus on particular strategies or is something where you could, like, flesh out, okay, yeah. what's really the issue here? Like, I guess it'd be a mix yeah. of both. Uh, yeah, definitely a balance of both. Definitely breathing, meditation, um, being more mindful about things. Like you absolutely can help settle things in a, in the moment. That's that's great. I'm a little bit more holistic in my approach. It's not just about strategies, but trying to help athletes understand where potential expectations are coming from, mm. where anxiety might have started from, um, trying to give people a little bit more emotional insight. And yeah. often you find that once you can identify when, where, how, why, then those strategies work a lot better. If we're just looking at strategies first and foremost, it's almost an ongoing battle because we've got to do it all the time. But if we can understand the root cause or what triggers it or what sort of creates it, then we have a less need to you know, focus on strategies and we just have a more general roundness or balance that gives a little bit more insight as to how to sustain ourselves, particularly under competition pressure. Yeah. I've... um. In, in conversations I've had just with mates, like they were super competitive in their sport, like very younger on, like, and then it kind of got ruined, I guess, by themselves, like by their yeah. own pressure, they put themselves mm-hmm. and also parents pressure yep. as well. And ex- other yep. external pressures, their coaches pressure. Um, so when it comes to, I guess, developing a relation, a healthy relationship with the game, um, is it something where you kind of take them away from thinking about the fact that you're performing? Like it's more, are you more just kind of focusing on everything else, but the performance part, because I guess it's yeah. just like, I guess in physio, like if you say, if I had a bad shoulder or something like that, yep. you must, you're going to massage, you know, what's around yep. and you're going to look at what's, what the yep. muscles are doing around it. Is, is it similar to that? Abs- yep. Absolutely. That's a great analogy. It is. It's, mm. a, it's about repairing the damage, but then also understanding where the muscles might be weak or where the stabilizers aren't quite right. And, strengthening and and they call it prehab right so doing work that can help prevent injury so yeah absolutely um prehab in terms of physical preparations is a key phrase or or a key idea at the moment so yeah in terms of the sport psychology aspect or focus that i take is exactly that mate it's it's about trying to understand where things have come from and and where things might be a little unstable and then working out how we can stabilize those and unfortunately you're right I, i don't think parents or coaches intentionally or willfully want to create a an issue for for their athletes but yeah it definitely can happen like you said some of the work i'm doing is as i said calming parents down or, or managing their expectations because sometimes unconsciously they can put that pressure and expectation on their kids and sometimes i find that it's parents that may not have um, achieved significantly in their own life and they're trying mm-hmm. to help their kids achieve more right. i find that parents that have had quite a lot of success or coaches that have had a lot of success in their own life are a little bit more relaxed around their athletes or their own kids because they understand yeah. that it's a process. They understand that it's a step. And just because you make a rep team when you're 12 doesn't mean you can do it at 13 or 14. And just because you haven't made it by 15 doesn't mean your career's done. You yeah. know, some kids don't peak till much later in their life. And 
as we're starting to find out now through a lot of the uh, women's professional sports, some people aren't even playing the sport. They end up becoming professional and they're playing other mm. sports and those skills transfer into, you know, maybe basketball has become good AFL players or, you know, um, yeah. you know, other, other combat athletes might become more rugby league players or rugby players, right? Cause they're used to that contact and intensity. So, you know, that's the other thing that I think people need to understand that there's a transition and a skill set that can develop later in life. So I think professional athletes or higher achieving athletes, people understand that, but it's sometimes parents that, you know, trying a little bit too hard to compensate or make up for potentially their own inadequacies or insecurities that they can unintentionally, mm. I think most of the time, put that expectation or that weight on their kids when they're not emotionally ready for it. Yeah. Wow. That's really interesting. Like, mm. And yeah, it, it can be such a fine line between like enjoying the sport and mm. just being genuinely just into yep. it, but then also hating it because you feel like it's a chore or yep. feeling like you've yep. got the whole world look, yep. watching you. Yeah. Absolutely. Especially when you're 12 or 13 or 14 and you're not emotional, not you, but people aren't emotionally ready for that expectation and that increase. You go, as you say, you go from hanging out with your mates and playing sport on a Saturday or a Sunday and mm. chilling with them after a game to not, you've got to eat this way and strengthen this way and go to the gym and, Sharp to training three or four times a week. And sometimes you've got to travel a long way to get there if, you know, if, if the training places are not, you know, the next door oval or the local community group, but you've got to go a bit further. So there can be that expectation as well. And then you're traveling potentially longer distances for competition. So it changes everything. Yeah. Yeah. Is there like anything in particular that got you involved with this field? I know you love your sport, yep. but until to, to the world of, um, psychology, you know, I guess I'm interested, you know, what kind of got you so passionate? Yeah, it, it's a, it's an interesting journey, mate, my story. And, and it's not your traditional, you know, uh, finished HSC, got into uni, um, graduated, then become a psychologist. I um, personally, my, my story is a little bit more, uh, yeah, well, I think it's a bit more typical, but maybe not more straightforward. I, I did my HSC and didn't do so well and worked for a few years and so I didn't know what I was going to do. And then um, of all things, I had a, um, an accident on a, on a motorbike at a friend's farm and broke my ankle and just rethinking about things when I was about 20. And, you know, I thought I might go back to uni and wasn't quite sure what I, or do my HSC again and then with the hope to go to uni. And I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do and had a passion for sport, as you've mentioned, and always enjoyed being around teams and people and you know, consider myself to be a middle of the range athlete, nothing of any note, but certainly mm. enjoyed that camaraderie, that teamwork and identify within myself that my passion was in supporting people and encouraging people and a bit more a voice than a performer as such. And was happened to just read an article about someone that was a psychologist doing some work with the Wallabies way back in, uh, must have been like 1995 or 1996, it was going wow. back a while and very in the early stages of sports. So I kind of thought, well, that sounds perfect. And didn't know a lot about it, did a bit more research and found out it was about, you know, connecting with people and supporting people and being a little bit more emotionally present. I thought that would be perfect. So that's how I got into it, mate. It was a bit of a roundabout sort of way, but yeah. I guess it's a, it's a story that a lot of people can relate to. You know, it's not necessarily a straightforward path from yeah. school to uni to happily ever after. Luckily, it can be a bit of a journey yeah. sometimes. Yeah, it could often be, and even myself, it can often come from a, a period of like, self-realization or, or mm. a, 
a down period in your life where yep. you actually really need to start thinking about your trajectory and like, okay, yep. what am I actually doing? Like, what, <laughs> what do I want to do? Like, cause I want I want, obviously you want to do something that is fueling you something that is that you genuinely enjoy. And it's so hard to know that coming out of high school, I think, I think there needs to be a bit more outreach to that personally. Um, because yep. yeah, myself coming out of high school, I had a year and a half like deferred cause I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, but again, I had that, those pressures being like, Oh, you're going to do this. You're going to do that. You're going to go uni. You're going to go, going to go TAFE. Um, eventually I went to uni. Um, but like, that's, I needed that year and a half to actually, okay, let me figure out what I yeah. um, want to do. Like, yeah, I guess, what did you do in that, in the time after uni? Were you just like working or jobs or just kind of doing your own thing? before you went into uni um, after was age, age 20? Yeah, so yeah. so I um, literally um, finished year 12 and then was up looking for jobs and didn't know what I was going to do. So I ended up doing an apprenticeship as a stonemason. Yeah. Um, okay. Of all things, just it literally was a job on a job card in oh, the old CES back in the day, suddenly now, and mm. went and did an interview. And next thing I'm, I'm working as a stonemason and anyone that knows me understands I can barely change a light globe. So becoming a uh, <laughs> not the greatest idea, but Hey, you do what you do. And yeah. did that for a few years, it worked out. That wasn't for me and got out of the apprenticeship and then was doing a bit of laboring work, a little bit of factory work. And as I said, had that accident, like you just identified, like it was a bit of a down moment that made me think a little bit more holistically or a little bit more long-term about where I was at and what I was doing. And, you know, I had people around me, thankfully encouraging me that I was wasting my skills a little bit and, Never considered myself to be a supersonic student by any stretch, but knew I had a little bit more talent that I was probably showing. And um, yeah, like you identified, it was my own determination, my own self-belief that took me back to TAFE. I did my HSC again through TAFE and then Mm. uni that way. So I I think you're absolutely right, mate. Sometimes you just need that space and reflection point. And when you can identify it for yourself, a bit like athletes, when it's about you and what you're trying to achieve and you understand your own, you know, threshold in terms of, talent and expectations a lot easier just to commit to things and stick at it but as you say and as you've identified if it's parents or friends or teachers or coaches or whatever it might be pressurizing our performance or you know trying to manage their expectations of our expectations Mm. it becomes a little bit more tricky mate so as you've identified like exactly right you know yeah that could happen early like we did for us you know similar sort of age i think and sometimes it happens a lot later in life but it's important that you have that as you say that self-realization that self-actualization that a little bit more in the tank and when you identify that it's a little bit easier to stick to a process yeah interesting um with the past well two years it's been um obviously going through COVID-19 mm-hmm. um I guess the bulk of it um fingers crossed um and <laughs> <type> so. <laughs> yeah, <funny how. laughs> I don't want to jinx I could touch them yeah, yeah touch me. wood yeah yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so I guess how was that impacting your business. I've heard people say it was amazing. Like it was actually good for them. Mm. Um, and obviously we know the downside that it was, it's been horrible yeah. for some people. How has that been affecting you personally and then yeah. your business? Yeah, it's a good question, mate. Look, to, to be honest, it's been mixed for us in, in mental health psychology space. As you can appreciate, everyone's been significantly impacted mentally by lockdowns and restrictions and social distancing or physical, di- all those things. And, and so for us, it, there's been a, an, an, uh, an influx, a, a spike in referrals, which has been good. 
but also for us quite overwhelming because you're dealing with people in significant distress, may have lost jobs or yeah. incomes or relationships falling through the floor. So it's been quite overwhelming for all of us in that psychology, counselling, mental health space. Um, so we've had to make sure we've looked after ourselves and, and, and fortunately we've been able to keep working through um, as an essential mm-hmm. service. We were able to keep offering uh, support either face-to-face, obviously when restrictions allowed or yeah. telehealth, these sort of things. So we've been able to keep working, which has been good for business-wise, but in terms of distress and overwhelm for all of this year, quite um, confronting. Lucky it's a horrendous period of time for, for mm-hmm. all of us. It, it- I remember seeing stuff in the paper, how much it spiked, how it like, oh, I called the calls to lifeline went yeah. insane. Yep. Um, I guess, and this would be a hard thing for you. I imagine to, to navigate when you want to keep a, want to keep a professional. You don't want to get, I guess, too emotionally tight, emotionally yep. tied to a client. Yep. Um, how hard is that? I oh. guess, cause I'm looking to get into the, I guess, counseling or therapist yeah. um, world myself, or at least yeah. life coaching. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm interested, I guess, yeah. how, yeah. How hard is it to yeah separate sometimes the yeah. professionalism from being yeah. in what you're there from yeah. you are a, a psychologist. Yeah. From, yeah. It's a, that's a great question, Lockie. And, and for a lot of us, it is a struggle, particularly if you're dealing with more vulnerable um, clients and, and you can see that they're genuinely struggling and in spite of what we're talking about, it's a real struggle to apply some of those strategies. So you're absolutely right. It is very difficult um, to separate, you know, that professionalism from that emotional connection. Mm. It, it's a balance that every professional needs to get in terms of a mental health counselling space and you need to have a pretty strong process that you follow. And for me personally, that's something I've been working on well before COVID hit because to be in private practice, particularly we're seeing clients back to back and right at the moment, we've never been busier than we ever have in our, in my entire 20 odd years of doing this, we've never been busier. So there's a lot of work out there, but I want to make sure that I'm giving every person that genuineness and that connection. And that's a fine line because some people become too connected and then burn out. Some people aren't connected enough and become a little bit too distant. So you've got to Mm -hmm. be mindful that there's a, there's a balance there. So for me personally, my, my style doesn't resonate with everyone. Luckily I don't make any, bones about that in terms of when I'm working with clients, I'm a, you know, very compassionate, very caring, very supportive person, but I'm also a fairly straight shooter in terms of um, what I think is happening or what I sense might be going on. I'm certainly yeah. not aggressive in that, but I'm certainly very happy to have more direct conversations with clients and and some clients don't like that. Some psychologists don't do that. But for me, I find that keeps everyone nice and safe and put some boundaries around what we're doing because there's a balance there. You want to make sure you're compassionate and connected, but you also don't want to feel like, or personally, I don't want to feel like I've left anything off the table. Mm. So that helps me sleep at night. No, all right, well, I've seen X amount of clients today. I've had all the direct conversations. I've, I've tried to be fair, compassionate, reasonable, but I've also tried to be a little bit direct and guiding and a little bit more um, uh, around those lines. Lucky that helps keep me um, comfortable. Yeah. I've said what I need to say. They've heard what they've needed to hear. Even if it's been difficult, we've worked our way through it and we've given them some, simple strategies in terms of being able to narrow it down and focus on what they've got to do in spite of feeling overwhelmed or distressed. So that's how I keep myself in check, mate. And that's mm. a process that I stick to. Yeah. I mean, sometimes that's, you, you need to hear that. Like I know myself was someone who I saw last, last year, two years ago. Um, and who I'm still um, like, he's actually, I'm going, I'm taking a course from him of all things. Oh, um, okay. But yeah, great. he, one thing that he said that was very, very like straightforward 
because um, we were looking at all my like patterns that I was running. You know, I guess my eating patterns, sleeping patterns. You know, I guess gen- general lifestyle patterns. Um, and they they looked very monotonous. They looked very they looked unhealthy, and they were also just very the same thing, right? Yeah. And the one thing he said was like, he's like, um, which has always stuck with me. It hit me at first, but it's mm-hmm. always stuck with me. It's like. Like the definition of insanity is doing like the exact same thing over and over again and expecting um, different results. And like that's yeah. resonated with me. I always think about that whenever I'm doing an interview with someone or just yeah. in general, I just always think about it because yeah, if you're running, if you're running in that same circle yeah. every single time, like you're obviously going to do those same, you're always yeah. going to feel the same yeah. way. Um yeah, and that's great advice. Yeah. But sometimes that can be confronting, right? Sometimes exactly. you, hear that and you can get offended. I'm not going back to see that person. You're like, well, I'm just trying to help. You know, I'm just yeah. trying to lay it out there. It works, right? So that's great. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, I guess it, it's hard, and it's hard for you to you, to know someone mm. if they're going to take that advice the right yep. way or if they're going to take it in another yes. way. Yeah, um, so that's another, I guess, the tricky balance. Or like, yeah, another, yeah, yeah another. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah I always encourage people to have conversations like we're doing, right? You, you can disagree, you know? Yeah. And, and so some of my clients love that. Some of them love having a good stash and a good conversation because it's done with compassion and kindness and it's not done with malice or manipulative or controlling, mm-hmm. right? It's done with a genuineness to want to get to the bottom of it relatively quickly. And as you've identified, like you hear something that offends potentially people and if you use it the right way, it can be something that really works and something you can yeah. stick to down the track, mate. So yeah, that, that's exactly what I'm trying to achieve with all my clients. Yeah. And I guess through the lockdown um, we were talking about before, I guess the main patterns that you've um, seen with clients, there's obviously been the financial worries, which Mm -hmm. has been, I guess, at an all time high through people losing their jobs and having to get payments and all, and like having to isolate all this stuff. Uh, But I guess, yeah, what does that mean? What is the most, I guess, um, prevalent, I guess, conditions or, uh, I guess things that you've had to yeah. um, work with clients well, on. Yeah, mostly for us human beings, we, we don't like restrictions. As we started to find out, we we don't mm. like having a, a an inability to control things, and that's obviously what lockdown created. There was a time where you couldn't even leave your own suburb. There was a time where you mm. couldn't physically go out your front door without having to justify your existence. So, as human <laughs> beings, we don't we don't we don't like that, and that's been the biggest thing. And for some people, it could be something simple as you know. I couldn't go to my regular gym classes and that's what threw me for some people can be more significant in terms of work shutdown. I don't have any income. So that those restrictions and the impact it had psychologically on people not being able to maintain the normal routines that then caused a disconnect between themselves and potentially their partners or their kids, or, you know, obviously there was, you know, inability to go and visit people or see people. It really did cause a lot of psychological and emotional distress Mate, we, we live in a country where you can pretty much within reason do whatever you like, whatever you like, and to have those mm. restrictions in place and those liberties taken away, yeah, that's absolutely what it did to people emotionally, just broke them down. And mm. we can all appreciate how that happened. Yeah. And I, I guess it's hard for people to, like, you can't, like, say if you had uh, one client come in and they were telling you, like you said, like, a really hard thing for them was having like the gym, mm. um, like not being able to go to that, that class. Right. Yeah. Um, and then the next client you see after that, were telling you how their business is completely shut down. Yeah. They've had to, yeah. And I guess hardships aren't exactly comparable because no. obviously yep. 
it, we interpret things different ways, but um, yeah, I guess we you, would you be saying like those same, oh, yeah. not the same things, but no, pretty yeah. similar things, right? Just, yeah, no, no, hundred percent, mate. Okay, you never want to be disrespectful. You never want to someone says, "Oh, okay, my biggest distress is I can't go to." you know, my gym class and you go, well, that doesn't count. And yeah. right? there's someone going, Oh, my business is falling. And you go, oh, well, that's the end of the world for you. And you should just quit. Right. So it's, mm. there's a balance. Everyone's distress, as you say, is different. Everyone's tolerance levels are different. So for me personally, I'm very comfortable. So, all right. Well, if that's distressing for you, it's distressing, right? It's not about what I consider distressing because what I can tolerate is different to other people, but it doesn't make it better or worse. It just makes it different. Lockie. So anyone worth their soul in terms of counseling, psychology, professionally would be, uh, absolutely adopting the same mentality that everyone's distresses is absolutely fair and reasonable and we yeah. want to treat it in a fair and reasonable way and you never want to be dismissive just because it's not as significant as you might think it should be or could be so yeah that's definitely my approach mate everyone's entitled to their own distresses and we want to normalize it we want to rationalize it and then we want to help people understand how they can manage it move it forward from big things like financial distress through to potentially not so bigger things in terms of exercise class or those sort of things in terms of a scale. Mm. So we want to be able to normalize it, but then we want to be able to give people safe options, how to navigate that, whether it involves other people or just themselves. Yeah. About navigating it forward, mate. Yeah. And I guess as you normalize each one and you, you validate each, um, I guess, problem that you see in, a, in, in their client, like that process to um, addressing it, like they can just be like, okay, sweet. It's similar to this problem. I can, apply yep. a similar uh, method yep. or a similar process like um and it often can come at um the cost of just oh well i'm reaching out to a friend or i'm reaching out to this person like i'm yep. looking through my network and seeing who can actually you yep. can genuinely help with this yeah absolutely yeah no exactly right and and, and even within families distress can be different because Someone like myself, you know, kept going to work and could keep working versus other people in the household that couldn't go to work at all. So, mm. you know what I mean? Like that can cause its own distress, let alone, you know, people that might be going through similar things but quite different and unfortunately had a lot of negative impact um, in terms of relationships, mate, and the amount of relationships that are broken down because potentially people are locked in and restricted and working oh, from yeah. home and trying to fight over office space or whose work's more important than kids are at home and trying to homeschool and mm. all those sort of things, mate. So even just within couples, it can cause distress. And unfortunately, as I said, a lot of relationships are broken down as a result of that yeah. kind of distress. It's, it's something I kind of worry about as I'm becoming a teacher, but I've noticed with kids that they're basically, they were year five, started lockdown, now they're year seven. Yep. Or like year three, now the year five, they're basically at that same level because lockdown, they didn't mm. get to learn. They didn't yep. get to, um, yeah, they just, they, they lost yeah. a lot of those things. And it also made them more comfortable by being like isolated, which is like, you can meet like there's introverts, extroverts, but like it made them, made certain kids more comfortable just being, yeah, like or less comfortable being in a, in a, in a social yeah, exactly. like, situation. Is it yeah. something, are you seeing a bit more, um, maybe like younger kids as we come yeah. out of lockdown, like younger clients? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Especially when things started to lift quite significantly early this year or back end of last year. Yeah, there was a lot of that, um, you know, what we would call like returning to normality anxiety. Yeah. And as you've identified, if kids had gone from year five to year seven, they've missed that whole transition and you go to high school and you're in year eight, right? And that could be the first time you physically have been in a 
you know, in high school. So it's a, it's a big transition. And yeah, so mm-hmm. you're right, mate, that caused a lot of anxiety. And, um, you know, I, I was sort of thinking that a lot of kids would um, just readjust and go back to normal pretty quickly. But unfortunately, it hasn't been the case for everyone. Certainly a lot mm-hmm. of kids have, but you're right, a lot of kids haven't. And so that can be quite distressing for not just a child, but for parents as well, because they've gone back to normal and they don't have the necessarily uh, the time to commit to their kids and those sort of things because life's yeah, gone yeah. back to relatively normal. So, yeah, it's, it, it definitely is a transition issue, mate, and something we need to be very aware of. Yeah. Yeah, it's still, it's, it's going to be, I guess, recurring over the next couple of years. Hopefully not, yeah. but we'll, we'll, we'll see, yeah. <laughs> I guess, yeah. how it goes. Yeah. But there's also um, a lot of upside to that because I think it helps simplify things. You know, kids' sport wasn't on, so yeah. kids were out hanging out with their mates and riding bikes and yeah. neighbours and doing those things when, when you're allowed to. So I think there's a lot of um, upside and simplicity to lockdown as well, which people enjoyed and helped uh, slow a lot of parents down because we weren't taking kids to multiple after-school activities on multiple days. So in a lot of sense, it did help, you know, reconnect people and slow people down. It took it to a probably more a quieter time. You know, mm. back in the back in the day, back to the eighties or seventies, whatever it might have been, right? Where well before yeah. your time, a little bit before, you know, in my early times, you know, where yeah. it was hung out with your mates on a bike and rode around the street, right? There wasn't as much organized sport or pressure to do things. But um yeah. yeah, so that was a benefit. But it seems like things have relatively gone back to normal and sports started back up and yeah, after school activities are back to where they were. So it's sort mm. of great, but also um this a disadvantage as well in that sense, mate. Yeah, true. Um, also with your, your your practice offering addiction counselling as yep. well, um, and I'm also like I'm particularly interested in counselling for pornography addiction because I think that is, I guess, maybe overstigmatised, but I just feel like it's misinformed um, what mm. people think about it yeah. um, in the sense that it's just like any other addiction to where oh, that's just from what I've seen. You can obviously disagree, but I guess just oh, from absolutely. that. No, it's an addiction. Absolutely. It's a, um, it's just like, it's just anything that you're a habit that you're just trying to break. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, I've had my own, um, you know, struggles with it. Um, but I guess, yeah. What's your experience with um, dealing this with clients? Yeah. Um, Mate, look, it, it, it is more prevalent at the moment and, and, and rightly or wrongly, um, pornography is way more accessible than it ever has been in the history of humankind. And yeah, kids are getting access to it a lot younger. I've heard a lot of stories of kids in year five, year six, getting access to pornography on phones, right? You can Google stuff, you can, you know, social media stuff that that is so more accessible now. And yeah, yeah, unfortunately it's a lot more um, accessible. And I think to be honest, it's it's a mix in terms of the, the reasons behind it. For some people it's about exploration. For some people it's about, um, you know, fear and anxiety for some people that goes into some deeper rooted addiction um, mm. issues. Like it's different for different people, but you're right, it is stigmatized and it's not spoken about a lot. And yeah, it definitely is something that needs to be a little bit more understood. But we certainly appreciate now uh, the long term effects of, you know, overstimulation through pornography. And, and that can certainly skew um, views on sexual intimacy, um, sexuality. Um, what's what's acceptable, what's not, and yeah. it certainly has exposed um, a lot of people to, you know, a lot more riskier behaviours in terms of sexual activity as a result of what they're watching or seeing on, you know, on pornography or online or whatever it might be, mate. Yeah, and it can give, I guess, a false image of what normal, not normal, but I guess what sexual relationships are like. It can give like yeah. a, 
yeah, I guess a, a more animated or even more rough view of what it is. Definitely. And so yeah, like definitely. looking at it itself, it's, it's a huge industry. I, I saw a statistic where it was like, it's even bigger than like YouTube and like Google, yeah. like in terms of how much money's in it. Sure. I wouldn't be surprised, man. Yeah. It's like, how do you even address yeah. that? It's just, that's the hard thing to address, yeah. I guess. Yeah. It, and it's, but it's, to be honest, it's not even about the impact it has on people's sexual relationships. And you're right. It's not just males watching pornography. It's, mm. you know, it's, it's females. It's, it's every gender watching yeah. it. And, and it's skewing a lot of people's view of what is acceptable and what's not, but also can create a lot of, um, anxiety and fear around forming relationships and and because some people compare themselves right oh, I don't look like this and I can't do that and mm. I don't have this and I don't have that so you know how is someone going to be attracted to me or what's going to make me appealing or is that what I have to do to yeah. be appealing to someone it can certainly skew not just what you're doing when you're engaging in intimate acts but it also can be about your not yours but people's comfortability around whether they're even capable of doing what you know they're seeing mm. on pornography uh, and then that certainly skews a lot of people. So it's not just about, you know, people looking at that and then replicating. It could also be people becoming more anxious and fearful about their abilities to do what they're seeing or replicate what the image is in their mind of what should be happening or shouldn't be happening, mate. So it's yeah, a lot of relationship issues just in that regard, mate, or starting out in relationships. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. And that's something yeah, we don't think I, um, about. It's not, yeah, that's, they just think about it in terms of how it plays out in terms of reality, but also can be a really, um, overwhelming and, and can really scare people in or out of relationships or even just personal relationships because they they feel judged or worried that if they're not doing what's done on pornography someone's going to think they're not that great or not that worthy yeah. or not that prowess or however you want to describe it yeah yeah right um that's just it's super interesting i, I want to do I'm going to look into more in that because I think it's something, yeah, again, it's, it's over stigmatized mm. and through just people that I've talked to, it's just something that's so normal to view. Yep. Yep. And I mean, whether you have a, a, a negative relationship with it or not, like you could have a positive relationship and that's, that's okay. Um, but I guess I know just personally, like it's like a very, it's like a moment of like satisfaction and then followed by probably like a day, a couple of days of just yeah. absolute like yeah, regret, remorse, around, yeah, feel horrible, yeah, um, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's where the fine line is, Lockie. And and for people who are going through, who are probably listening or watching this podcast and maybe struggling with their own um, issues around pornography, it, it is stigmatized and is demonized, and and it does make it harder to talk about it openly and honestly. So I'm you know, very grateful that you're being so open about it and we're having a discussion in terms of it, mate, because it is something that we want to just um, normalise to a degree and want to help people understand how to actually manage it moving forward in terms of their own relationships or their own sexuality or their own, you know, intimate um, lives because Mm -hmm. it it does skew people and what we think is normal and acceptable clearly shouldn't be judged on what we're seeing on pornography because it's, uh, it's not how it is. Yeah. Yeah, Not how it should be in reality anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And through your your experience um, and as you're learning more yourself, because I'm, you know, I know you're a very avid learner. You're always looking to to improve, obviously. Um, Yeah. I guess, is there any new, I guess, discoveries or updates, new approaches that you've, that you've found, um, 
in the world of mental health, in the world of just psychology yeah. um, that people don't necessarily know about or yeah. that they aren't informed about. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it's a bit like how I approach everything in terms of addictions, whether it's pornography, alcohol, gambling, um, whatever it might be, mate. I, I, we're looking at it more from a holistic view and more from an emotional um, standpoint, which is mm-hmm. not what it used to be back in the day. It used to be just very, you know, process driven and very addiction focused, right? We do A, we do B, we do C, we, you know, we do, you know, 12 step programs, we do AA, we do NA, yeah. and, and there's certainly places and, and options for, for that to happen, but try to be a little bit more emotionally aware rather than just, you know, you have to do this or you have to do that. I take a more emotional approach to it, trying to understand again, like we do with athletes, where's it coming from and what, what makes you feel more comfortable when you, you know, when you're viewing these sort of things or you're doing these sort of things, like what are we trying to emotionally escape from? Because unfortunately, mm. a lot of addiction issues are emotionally based, but it's not something that has been traditionally focused on or spoken about. It's been more process driven and more addiction management strategies as opposed to emotional understanding and awareness locking. So that's how I like to approach any addiction issue, no matter what it is. Yeah. It's like that, um, the classic thing that, kids do is like they ask why after like everything you say <laughs> and I, I feel like in my experiences by with seeing therapists like that's that they do that a lot and it's to find that get to the source of it like you yep. said like you want to actually have an emotional approach to it exactly right yeah yeah because there's an emotional reason people are, are sinking into addiction whether it's gambling or alcohol or drugs or pornography right there's a significant emotional component to that and mm. Back in the day, we never used to worry about the emotional component of it. You know, if if, if someone had a you know a, an anxiety diagnosis as well as an addiction issue, they'd have to go and deal with them separately. So it wouldn't be you wouldn't be able to deal with your addiction and your anxiety at the same time. They, oh really? You know, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was one or the other. And if someone wow. had a dual diagnosis, they wouldn't be admitted into rehab centers or wouldn't be able to engage in wow. those sort of things because it's a dual diagnosis and and we can't you know manage it at the same time. That's, mm. that's what we used to think. So yeah. certainly in terms of psychology and mental health, but being a lot more flexible in terms of, you know, there's a, can be a significant anxiety issue to addiction. There can be a significant depression anxiety, uh, focus, you know, and we yeah. can do dual diagnosis and we can treat both at the same time, which is much better for our clients and for people struggling because we can do both at the same time as opposed to, right, well, now you've got to focus on your anxiety and then you come back to us for the <laughs> rehab stuff or you've got to do rehab stuff first and you can worry about your anxieties. It used to be very militant and very structured along those lines. And there's still certain places that do do that. Yeah. But we're becoming more aware that there's usually a dual diagnosis. There's usually a, you know, uh, there's a comorbidity process to this, mate. It's not just about one or the other. Yeah. It's all very like interrelated. Yeah. Like I like how you, you're approaching it in a, in a holistic sense. Just personally, I, I've, I've found that's good. Um, yeah. For me, it's, 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 it's improved my life. You know, things in a in a yeah. holistic sense yeah um and i guess there's so much that's that's coming out there's so many like new age um approaches um is is yeah like what else has there been that you've found like i guess with breathing and then there can be yep. the, the nutritional side of things yeah um there can be the sleep patterns as well i'm sure you'd, you'd be working yep. with people to help that like yeah is there any Absolutely. other yeah yeah yeah, you definitely need to take a more holistic view, and that's definitely something that has improved over the course of the last 10, 15 years. Um, you, you know, newer styles of evidence-based counselling around, um, you know, acceptance and commitment therapy, uh, mindfulness-based techniques, 
Um, there's a lot more research now around that emotional connection. Psychology has traditionally been about thoughts and CBT and very mm. driven around, you know, identifying thoughts and regulating thoughts. We start to understand that you take a step, you know, below that and, and there's a significant emotional component to how and why and where those, you know, feelings start and then that generates it into thoughts, mate. So personally, mm. I'm a lot more focused on understanding feelings and it's a little bit harder work. And it's a little bit more, you know, psycho analytic or psychodynamic, which not a lot of psychologists are comfortable with, but certainly something that a lot of people are becoming more in tune with uh, in terms of getting that mix right between thoughts and feelings and impacts on on uh, on people's uh, habits or addictions. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is um, I guess in the world of 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 grief, and you'd obviously be dealing with with people who are grieving, and yeah. and I guess it can become in many forms. Um, and you were talking about how it, things of you used to be, I guess, process driven. Mm. Um, it doesn't matter either way, but like, do you, are you, do you still approach people with that who are grieving with that? I guess like maybe like it's like a 12 step approach I've heard or like in, in a process driven approach, or do you mix it with a bit of, um, I guess the opposite, like they're not yeah. process to I, it. I start with a lot more emotional insight. Yeah, and focus wholly and solely on the emotional component of it to start with, mm. and then we start walking people through a, a grief process in terms of regulating thoughts and understanding behaviours and, and being a little bit more focused on on a process. But initially, yeah, it's understanding that emotion, normalising it. It's coming to terms with loss and sadness and mm. all those things. Locking and grief can be quite complex because it's not just necessarily about one element of that grief there can be multiple elements to that can be you know relationships that wanted to be had but weren't had or Mm. sadness around an awesome relationship that's no longer in existence it's not just about death that can be relationship breakdowns that can be business um breaking down grief not just about loss of people it can be anything and everything yeah which is where it becomes more complicated because it's not you know traditional anymore there's grief happens for many different reasons mate yeah, I love how you, how you speak to that because like that's what I think should be should be again normalized more in in my experience. I, I've I've lost people and that's mm. been a grieving process, yeah. um, and with respect to them, but I've also missed out on opportunities, you know, in my past, in yeah. my past life, in in <laughs> in my past, um, you know, relationships and mm. um, certain things with like sport that haven't yeah. gone exactly my way and. You know, exactly. even though I put my you know heart into it, it didn't, it didn't you know go yep. exactly in my way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think I just think it's great for people to to realize, yeah, grieving is everything. It's not just yep. oh, you lost someone like they passed away. Yeah, exactly right. Because then we can, I guess, use that process. Yeah, like you're right. Yeah, exactly. yeah, absolutely. It's not just about death. That that's obviously one form of grief. But as you identified, mm-hmm. it could be a sporting career, it could be a business career, it could be a yeah. relationship, could be a you know. A uni degree could be anything that yeah. you, know, you put your heart and soul into, as you said, Lockie, and it didn't go to plan or didn't work out. And that's devastating and absolutely fair enough. So, yeah, you're yeah. right, mate. And, you know, other people might not consider that worthy of grief, but for us personally, if it's something that's significant and it caused and it's a loss, that's the definition of grief, mate, no matter what mm. the situation involved or was about. Yeah, that's super important to to normalize for anyone watching or listening. Um, yeah. Grief is something I think that that would tie people down mm. for many years without them knowing that they're grieving. Like even, even my, um, even my cleaner or our 
household cleaner who who I actually had on to to speak oh, wow. as well. Yeah. She was like, I could tell you were grieving, but I could tell it wasn't like a person. It was more just like you were grieving a relationship, you were grieving um yeah. like something that happened like with sport and stuff like that. And I was like, damn, like how did you know <laughs> how did you know that? But um yeah, I'm sure so many of us are, are grieving something. Yeah. And it's but then it's like, how do you yeah. um address yep. that in the first place? But like you said, you start with that it's a more of an emotional thing. Is that where you're you're, you're getting to the source of it first? Absolutely. Why yeah. that is it's it's why is it hitting you so hard? Why is it exactly right. yep. yeah. Yeah. What okay. is it about that that situation that's so personal and so overwhelming for you? And as I said, mate, it's not about judging and going, oh, well, that's nothing to worry about. What are you doing? It's all right if that's where you're at and that's what you're feeling and digging, then absolutely let's get to the bottom of it. Why? What mm. is it about that emotion or what is it about the situation or what is it about it that's causing you to feel so overwhelmed? We yeah. understand that, then it's a bit easier to join some dots and put some strategies in place and move forward safely, mate. But if we don't get those insights or those understandings squared away, yeah, we can meditate, we can breathe, we can think this way or keep diaries or whatever it might be. But if we haven't understood the emotion or we don't really get to the background or the insight that we need, that can last for a lot longer than is good for us or the people around us, mate. Mm. And yeah, I love that. <laughs> well, I had something I was going to say, but I was like, no, that, that kind of fits exactly what, what I was thinking. Eh? <laughs> good. <laughs> That's great. Like, do you, uh, do you often find with people like it's, the source, like the source of, of why it's, you know, bothering them is com- like completely different to what they originally thought or like often. as you dive in. Yeah. Yeah. Often. Yeah. <clears throat> well, it's the name of your podcast, right? Path to peace. It's path different for everyone, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's how you get to peace, right? It's a path and it's, it, it's rocky and it's not the same for everyone, mate. But once you're on it and you get to that actual peace process or you get to that, peaceful understanding mate it makes everything a lot more straightforward even when it's more complicated mate we yeah. just need to understand the source you get to that i think most people home and hose from there they can manage it themselves pretty safely and relatively quickly but if you don't get to that peace point mate it's horrendous as you can absolutely appreciate yeah oh definitely yeah and 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 that's i guess i guess your role you don't want to be seeing them forever mm. you just want to carry them through that stage in their life where they yeah where they most need it Correct. And you want to yeah. do that respectfully and compassionately. And, and I like to do it very diligently and very um, directly when it's required, Lockie. And that's mm. how I find the quickest way or the most straightforward way to that happily ever after, mate. Sometimes it's a rocky road and it's a difficult road as we talked about, but you get to that insight, you get to that understanding, makes the rest of it a lot more straightforward. That's for sure. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> um, and I guess last thing I want to just touch on, I guess through your years of experience um, professionally and I guess personally, um, what is something that you can tell anyone listening now um, who's, I guess, struggling with an area of their mental health? Obviously, it's a very broad um, area to touch on. Um, But yeah, through your experience, what is something you can tell people? um, If I was to distill it down to it's absolute essence in terms of my personal professional opinion i always say to people it's okay to not be okay Mm. i really want to encourage anyone out there that might be struggling with their own mental health their own well-being physically whatever it might be it's okay to not be okay 
Yeah. If you can't even be okay when you're not okay, then there's no chance of reaching out for help. There's no discussion. There's no path to peace. There's no nothing. Yeah. So if I was going to distill it down and make it very clear to people, which is what I like to try and do, just let yourself know it's okay to not be okay. It doesn't matter if people agree or don't agree or mm. you feel like they're listening or they're not listening. You've got to know within yourself that if you're struggling, that's absolutely fair and reasonable because if you demonize yourself, there's no way of moving forward, mate. So that's what I would say to people. Just it's okay when it's not okay. Just yeah. Crazy. It's great. And that's thrown around a lot, but people actually, you got to break it down a bit. Like yep. it's, yeah, that's okay. It'll be okay. But like, absolutely. it's, there is obviously the shame part of it. And it's also yep. like, you don't want, people don't want to deal with the baggage, but like, that's going to be there forever. Exactly right. Yeah. yeah. And I say to people, if you try and bullshit your way out of it, you're going to struggle. It's going to make it worse, but you can't sit in it forever either. So it's fine lines. Yeah. Much wow. Not enough, but if we can't even get to our own internal recognition that we're struggling, that's okay. Then there's, as you mate, you, you, your podcast title describes it all right. There's no path to peace. If you're not even going to be willing to accept that it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to be scared. It's okay to feel weak, particularly for us blokes. Yeah, we hate, yeah. We, we, we hate it. Yeah, exactly. It's supposed to be. Yeah. Oh, historically, it's been against our DNA, but Correct. That's, not, that's not the case anymore. Definitely we're we're moving forward. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This is a great chat. I've I've got my own insights for myself because I want to dive into this world. Yeah. Um. But yeah, thank you so much for coming oh. on. No problems, Lockie. Thanks for having me, mate. I've enjoyed the chat and hopefully uh, some people get some uh, good content out of what we discussed today, but I appreciate the opportunity and thanks for being so uh, so open and honest, mate. It's made me feel a lot more comfortable chatting and hopefully that's come across to everyone that's listening. Yeah, hopefully. That, that's what I hope for people to see as well. So that's good. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. And, I'll, um, and anyone watching, listening, uh, stay tuned. Obviously, Joel um, operates his own Endeavor Wellness practice, so feel free to just to reach out. Um, if, yep. if anything that you see in this interview is something that you would like to um, extend upon. Um, yeah, there's always help out there. So absolutely go yeah. seek it, mate. That'd be my advice as well. It doesn't have to necessarily be me, but anybody, right? Like just, yeah, exactly that. If you're struggling, it's not weak to speak, get out yeah. there. And speak. Anyway, seek. go, go seek that help. Yeah. yeah. Lovely. All right. Thank you so much. I'll uh, see you all next time. Thanks, Loggy.